Tell me one thing I need to do as a manager, then the only good answer is pay attention to the self-esteem uh, of people surrounding you. Stand by, I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 356. Today is Sunday the 19th of January 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. And let me say how truly grateful I am that you've decided to take the time to listen to this podcast. I'd like to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a review on this show to JBLIV, and I'd encourage you to do the same if you like it. This week's interview is with Laurent Chouin. Laurent is Chief People Officer, Head of People, Education and Culture at the Mazar Group, a global audit and consulting company employing over 40,000 professionals around the world. In this conversation with Laurent, we discuss how human resource management has changed. Mazar's strategy for recruiting and retaining the best talent, or as he calls them, the creative class. Their focus on hiring naturally insecure overachievers. How to create and maintain a powerful culture. The particularities of the French management style and culture. How to handle diversity and inclusion. And a whole lot more. A really vibrant and operational discussion. Laurent Chouin. Great to have you on the show. Um, I got the chance to meet you when I had an assignment at Mazar, and you are head of people, education, and culture at Mazar, which is a wonderful set of things to look after, and I want to dig into each of these. But in your own words, describe who you are. First of all, I'm a never-lasting student. That would be my definition. And the second thing is I'm the what we would call the chef de village of Mazar. Uh, you know, chef de village is a word that is attached to Club Med. Uh, this is the kind of person that is always smiling and nice and trying to put a good atmosphere. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for the organization. But like I say, uh, this doesn't have to be visible. So the, the good processes are those you can't see. So my job is to make things uh, work and uh, having people not mentioning it and being totally happy in what they do. Um, last thing which matters to me um, I think I'm in charge of the self-esteem of people in an organization and this is not obvious because organization does do not uh, naturally expand the self-esteem of people so we you have to watch and, and actively work for it so that's my job well that rhymes very much with the next question which really looks at how the role of let's say dirash you know people who are yeah. in charge quote unquote of mm -hmm human resources has changed over the years because I feel that not only has the environment changed but the expectations of employees and what they're used to and how they receive feedback has also changed. Aspirations definitely change for different reasons. Uh, first of all the, the myth of the, of the enterprise cannot no longer be the same. Uh, the second thing is also that we all know that generations are changing. If you take the example of Mazar, uh, at Mazar the average age is 28. Uh, my previous firm was the Caisse d'Epargne, so French banking, uh, uh, French savings banks if you want, so the banking system, where the average age was 49. So uh, it's a total different ball game. Uh, our 28 years, years of age uh, leads to the fact that we need to be very um, to paying much attention to what the younger generation would ask and also be ready to change the way we work and the, the work environment, the work processes, all of this. Uh, so for this, what we do is we just listen. It's always a good advice from
from uh, Al Gregerson, you know, he says first listen, but of course you have to actively listen. So there, is, there, there must be something behind. If you're just stupidly listening, it doesn't make sense. So we listen to them and we ask, actually. So five years ago, we conducted an extensive survey on our Generation Y, so people born after 1980, um, and we asked 7,000 of them uh, in 64 countries, and we got in less than a week uh, 3,500 answers to a 62-question uh, questionnaire. So uh, obviously they were eager to talk. And we did the same for our Generation Z last year. So Generation Z are the people born after 1995. Uh, of course, they are less than uh, the, the wires uh, in our organization. They are only 10% of the. They were only 10% of the total staff. But uh, still, we we need to understand how they work and what they want. So. Mazar is essentially, or based on an auditing firm, does consultancy as well. You have uh, a presence, a footprint around the world. You're bor born in France, yet only 10% or so of your business is in France, or at least uh, of the people you have. You've, you've seen, obviously, a massive change through the internationalization. But you talked about self-esteem. How does one go about improving self-esteem at that scale <laughs> when it, you know you have so many different interfaces well first of all self-esteem is a human need uh, so uh, wherever you are in the world this is uh, by the way maybe a more um, commonality uh, between people around the world than for instance uh, gender diversity or things like this because these are important matters but that of course vary very much from one country to the others uh, in our case, uh, we know that self-esteem is a good entry point when you want to start talking to people. First of all, it's an individual entry point, not a collective one. And in my view, in HR, we tend to go too much for this kind of neutral, abstract, collective uh, approach to HR, while we should always focus on this, reinforcing the link uh, between people, including managers and non-managers. Uh, and self-esteem, in my view, is also something that leads to, for instance, uh, psychological safety, which is, as you know, uh, one of the big fad at the moment. And so we, we, we need to, to make sure that we modernize the, 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 uh, the social environment in, in, in which we live. So this is true everywhere in the world. I mean, if I talk to one of our uh, Indian staff uh, or an Argentinian uh, person, uh, be it a partner or uh, someone who just started uh, as, as a fresh uh, starter in, in Mazar, uh, the, the, the question is always the same. Is, how, is our organization able to grow the self-esteem of these people? So this is something which uh, matters a lot for us. So we try to modernize our uh, work environment. We are in a very competitive industry where people tend to stay not that long. 95% uh, of the people we have would stay between, I would say, 3 and 10 years. Is that something that worries you? Not at all. No, no, I need this. Uh, <coughs> just to, to, to tell the story uh, uh, as short as I can, uh, we need to have an attrition that is around 20% a year if we want to preserve our business model. This is part of the natural uh, business model of audit. Uh, that is a job performed by younger people than, uh, for instance, banking or whatever you want. And so hospitality, for instance, is another example. 
so we need to have this attrition rate. Like I say, I am not uh, a net char uh, of retention. My job is employability, not retention. I prefer having good people leaving than bad people staying. That's basically mm. the thing. The only thing is you can only uh, afford this if you have a permanent recruiting of top people. And so it becomes a kind of, uh, if you want, a virtuous circle of talent factory. Uh, you need to pay very much attention to the people that you're recruiting. And then you accept that good people are leaving because good people are coming in. So th this kind of natural Noria effect is very much important in our business. Well, for having lived my time at L'Oreal, where we were very attractive for younger people to come in, you also if people are leaving, might get the question, well, why are you leaving? And then if it's, well, I didn't like it there, or the environment wasn't good for me, it was too much stress, mm -hmm. that may not be a turn-on for in hiring new people. It's not the case in, in, in our organization, uh, because simply people... Um, there is an important uh, concept in, in HR, which is called the psychological contract. So it has been coined by uh, Canadian authors called Denise Rousseau, in the 90s, and she says, the reason why you join a company is not the material contract. And by the way, the reason why you would quit a company is also not this material contract. It's the psychological contract, something not written, but when you, want, when you joined L'Oréal, for instance, most probably you joined your view of what L'Oréal was, Absolutely. which, by the way, might have differed from what they said sure. about themselves. And uh, that's why also it's important to have people like Jean-Claude Legrand uh, uh, today, uh, my counterpart at L'Oréal, who Jean-Claude is very much able to, to both be the best um, epitomizer of what L'Oréal is, and at the same time, he has a lot of distance to this. And so he has a complete mastery of the thing. So it's the same. Uh, in our case, you have to understand that the people, when they come, they know that they won't stay long. They come for a kind of postgraduate experience, some of them mm -hmm. tell us. They say, well, it's a school, actually. It's not a school. We just prolong uh, what we had in our business school or engineering school or university. And so it's, it's really based on the fact that we, th th this game is very open. It's transparent. Everybody knows this. So uh, for many people, they come with already in mind the fact that they would leave. It's even increasing if you take the Generation Z. They say, well, you know, we just want to, 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 to learn from this. We just come for a short while, and then we'll go and do something else. Fine, we have to, to, to live with it, but even better, we need to leverage it. That's exactly what we do. So just going back on the self-esteem element, where does self-esteem occur in the process of recruitment? Is it a question? I mean, how do you determine? Because if, if someone comes in with very low self-esteem, that's not generally a good characteristic. <coughs> well, it, it, it's clear that if you take a company like L'Oréal, that's a very good example, uh, we share the fact that we tend to naturally recruit insecure overachievers. I don't know whether you know the concept or not, but it's sure. most probably you one mentor, I'm one, definitely. So these kind of people that are over, always overperforming because at the end of the day, they, they, they deeply inside they feel that they are, they are, they, they, they are imposters. Well, we, we shouldn't be there in a way. And so we do always our best. We give our best because we want to hide it and to kind of push back uh, the moment where, uh, the moment of truth where actually someone will see. Uh, actually, nobody will see because it's just in our mind. But... Uh, 
it means also that these kind of people are self-managed, self-motivated. And of course, this is the kind of people that you want at McKinsey, L'Oreal, Mazar, these kind of firms. So we tend to recruit these kind of people conscientiously or not. Now, if you look, uh, the problem is that when you're like this, if you believe that yourself you're an imposter, there is very little chance that you don't think that everybody is, is not an imposter. So you tend, when you become a manager, because on the top of that, you're very good. So what happens? You, you get promoted faster than other people. And you become a manager. But then uh, what made your success becomes your first enemy. Like uh, Marshall Goldsmith would say, what got you here won't get you there. And this is exactly this. It means that... Uh, what was a quality, most probably, as an employee, or if you want a wonderful model employee, uh, becomes really a killer uh, or a derailer when you become a manager. Because when you're a manager, you have to inspire trust. You have to, to let people be who they want and who they are, not to force this and not maybe to, to judge them. So it's a very important thing to, for us because... Everything in our business, especially in audit, where we are here to judge people, we are here always to be skeptical. You know, all of these qualities that are expected from a behavioral point of view might also become the, the, really the, the, the biggest derailers when you're a manager. So this is where also self-esteem has to be enforced as the, the very key concept. If you tell the people... Uh, and they, they tell you, tell me one thing I need to do as a manager, then the only good answer is pay attention to the self-esteem uh, of people surrounding you. And then, uh, if they want more advice, when we can go, but for this, this is a mantra, this is important. And even in companies like L'Oréal, by the way, uh, they have just changed their view. They have accepted to totally switch a system that has been said to be so efficient over a century and allowed them, by the way, to, to make something like a billion customers. But they have renounced to this. And Jean-Paul Lagon and Jean-Claude, they have pushed for what they call the lead enabler, so which is to turn from the, 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 the Jesus walk on the water type of leader, you know, the, the solely... Uh, performer, the, 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 the Bruce Willis of this world and these kind of things, to something more of a collective player, of a Lord of the Rings, if you want, mm -hmm. uh, type of player. You, uh, we've been talking about L'Oreal as well, as well as Mazar. You're talking a lot about managers, and, and you've written these great articles that I saw in, in LinkedIn, or at least where they were in a magazine before that, about um, essentially management à la française. Uh, that's what I. That's how I sort of characterized the seven articles you had. Price. Yeah, um, at Mazar, while you have French roots, you have a French CEO. You are majoritarily international, both in constitution of your business and the people who are working for you. To what extent is management à la française internationalizable and therefore you know appropriable by other cultures? I have to give back to César what belongs to César. Uh, I didn't write it, actually. I wrote uh, some chronicles yeah. about a wonderful book that has been written by three people, three good friends. Franck Bournois, the head of SCP Europe, and uh, an independent member of our board as well. Um, Yasmina Jaidi, who today works as the head of uh, leadership development at L'Oréal, by the way. And uh, Ezra Suleiman, the famous uh, wonderful professor at Princeton, uh, and they, they conducted a very interesting uh, study and research on how do people who are non, not French, but who are employees of French, originally uh, French companies, 
uh, how do they evaluate uh, the French management or leadership style, if you want? <coughs> and interestingly enough, we French, of course, uh, we have a lot of opinions about us. And to be <laughs> to be frank, uh, we are the best as trying to, to, to be arrogant against ourselves. We are arrogant in general, but against ourselves, we're the best. Mm. You know, the, the last, uh, I'm used to saying that the last uh, war we won in France was the French Revolution, because it was the French against the French. <laughs> so that was exactly this. So uh, if you listen to French people and you would say, what do you think foreigners think? Uh, uh, of us as managers, you would have a long list of complaints and saying, well, we are the, the worst, the things, and so on, uh, while also behaving in a very arrogant manner. So instead of asking the French about how the, the foreigners would um, evaluate the French in management positions, we, uh, they asked, actually, the foreigners living in French-led organizations, uh, multinationals, and how they perceive the French management. And this gave this book called uh, La Prouesse Française, the French prowess, um, that shows that actually it's totally different from what we would expect. There are, uh, of course, uh, some uh, criticism about certain aspects. But first of all, the three of them are academics, so they, they, they tend to describe things instead of judging things. And second, you would be surprised because what people value, uh, what people like in the French way of leading and managing is most of the time something we don't even see ourselves. So uh, this book is really a must read and then, by the way an enjoyable read as well because it's really nicely written and so you, you learn a lot. But you would see that we would never have written it spontaneously as leaders. There are many conclusions out of this but what is very interesting is that it shows uh, there is a certain coolitude, coolness, I don't know how to say, uh, of the French management that people tend to like and we shouldn't lose sight of it. Uh, we, need, we seem to be uh, abs abstract in the way we think, uh, which we could have seen before, but this is not something people don't like, on the contrary. Sure. They like this visionary, this kind of uh, long-term uh, pretension to, 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 to have a, a global vision. So uh, really, the, you should read the book because, again, it's not my own vision. Uh, personally, I, 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 before, before so Mazar, I was in the French banking system, but before that I worked in a totally international company uh, called Kempinski, so hotels. Uh, we didn't have a, a single hotel in France. So that was very funny because I, I, I used to work in a company where the French were not that represented except among some clients, but that was the only thing. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Well, so I definitely will put the show notes um, about the French prowess um, what I enjoyed was your articles. I thought that they, they, they sort of transpired you and your energy as well, and that was quite delicious. We always do a lot of this French bashing, mm -hmm. and, and, and there's nothing perfect about any system, whether it's the Americans or the English, and there's good things and bad things. What would be the quality that other people should then take on out of, if you had to learn from French management, that I should be 
using in my style, in my country, that you think is something that they can appropriate? That would be my answer. Uh, instead of answering maybe too globally, because I wouldn't say that every French um, woman or man uh, acts, acts the same, I would just answer for, because you were kind enough to, 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 to send it back to my own experience. I, I pay attention to three things that very few people don't pay attention to, I would say. Um, freedom, lifestyle, and ecosystem. So it means that when I uh, take over a job, I want to be uh, free in the way I can design this job. So this is maybe the visionary type of things. Uh, but uh, I want to make it a collective adventure, so um, I tend to see myself as, um, I don't like this idea of servant leader, but the reality is that I tend to live a little bit by this. Uh, what I mean by this is I have no difficulty in the same minute to go from the number one position to the number two to, to, to being uh, in the lead when I think this is needed, but most of the time uh, to be serving the people that will be the leaders in, uh, on my own team. Uh, so, uh, But I want to be able to design it myself. I want to make decisions sometimes even against the organization. This is typically French, you know, mm. to be this kind of soul heroic. Uh, it was called uh, La Logique de l'Honneur by a uh, former writer... Uh, uh, and and um, it, it's exactly this. So it means that I don't want someone to tell me uh, how I should lead my team or I should give freedom to my people. Uh, you know, uh, here I, when I looked for a CLO, uh, a chief learning officer, I hired a pregnant woman, young woman. This was not the done thing at all. Everybody mm. said, well, this is not us. I mean, you know, people have to work hard and this kind of thing. I say, well, who cares? Mm. That's my decision. But second, also, I wanted to educate a little bit uh, things. At the same time, um, I need lifestyle. And so it means that I want also the people around me to benefit from this and to, to have a lifestyle style life, I would say. Have a life. Have a life, a real life, exactly. Uh, I really think that business is just a social game, you know, so we are just passing by. It's not uh, something in which we, we should serve shareholders, this kind of thing and so on. Uh, I never uh, believed in this, in, in that bullshit, so I, that's not the thing uh, I, I want to do. I, I want people around me to have a nice lifetime experience. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes, you know, you have to get um, to part with people and uh, in that in that case every time and it happened to me uh, in the recent past let's say the last two years twice and I really uh, introspected myself in this and so I said really this is not the thing I want and so this was my mistake uh, I shouldn't have uh, recruited them maybe in the first place but I wanted also you know that's the, the, the beauty of it you, you, you want to give chance to people at the same time also you have to assume for the rest of the team sometimes that if it's the wrong choice then you should change the things. But I, I always feel sorry about this uh, because I really want people around me, be it, they, they can be my business partners, they can be uh, my peers, my colleagues, um, the people of my team. Uh, I want uh, people to have a nice moment where they come here. That's, again, a question of self-esteem, a question of happiness. But I don't like this chief happiness thing. I, I don't believe in this at all. Uh, happiness you don't have to, to be in charge of. You have to create it. You do whatever you can. And then we have to live with this. It's, uh, it's funny. I, I had recently on my podcast uh, the chief happiness officer of a company. A shout out to him. But so you mentioned freedom, lifestyle. The third is ecosystem. Yes. Ecosystem is, um, is the most important thing in my view. 
uh, if you want to, to grow in your, we all have a need to grow. Uh, we have contradictory needs and uh, we have a need to belong, but a need to grow. We have a need to, to, to you know, to be a, a part of uh, collectivity, solidarity. And at the same time, we want to singularize us. We, we need to be also uh, individuals that are performing, this kind of thing. So it's these contradictory things that at the end of the day make us also uh, uh, good human beings. But one of the things is you can't grow by yourself. You know this uh, Munchausen uh, syndrome where you you can uh, pull yourself out of, of a river by pulling yourself out of uh, from your own hair. It, it's not working. Uh, uh, so it's not the way it works. So in my view, the best thing I can provide, for instance, to the people on my team is to increase their individual ecosystem and our collective ecosystem. So there are plenty of people around me on my team that are um, connected to more and more people uh, that are growing their own network that are also maybe building their own employability even if it's not to work with me at the end of the day. So that's in my view the best thing but then also there are three characteristics that I, uh, I identify in high potential and by the way I don't call them high potential but I use the, the word uh, creative class which comes from uh, an urban uh, study specialist called uh, Richard Florida. Uh, the creative class adapted to organization means that uh, we need to seek for people that are not only the hypo of an organization. Because what is an hypo? Like at L'Oréal, for instance, for many years, it was the people that are the, the most gifted at reproducing a very solidarious and consistent system of management. But so it's like Pierre Bourdieu would, would call them. It's habitus. It means that you have, your, you have understood the codes but you just reproduce a system at one point. Uh, at an age where we need to reinvent things, when we need to reinvent organizations, it's not the done thing. What you should do is to look for other kind of people. And by the way, it's not linked to age. So I prefer the concept of creative class that is based on three things. You have to look um, for, first of all, what we call snowball learners. The snowball learners uh, means that uh, give two ideas to someone and then they will make five ideas out of it. Uh, it reminds me of the, the parable of talents. Yes, exactly. No, no, absolutely. Then the second uh, quality or let's say attribute would be um, they must be creative implementers. I make a huge difference between uh, abstract creativity and uh, creativity in implementing things. Mm -hmm. And in my view, the very successful people are not that uh, abstract uh, creators. They, they are not people that are very good in abstraction. They are very good in taking an idea and making it happen. Mm -hmm. So in my view, this creativity in action, so this creativity in implementing things is uh, a, a, a more scarce uh, quality that this creative class has. So creative class would most probably for many people mean the very original and, and full of ID people. This is not what I think. I think you have to be creative in the way you do things. And the last uh, characteristic is resource investigator, which sends me back to my ecosystem. A resource investigator is someone 
who is able to find outside the organization the resources that are not in the organization but are useful to its development. That's basically things that in uh, such uh, challenging companies like ours, we are the small guys around, you know. Uh, if you know the big four, we are not one of them. <laughs> so we need to be more clever, to have ideas, uh, to make sure that we can find outside the resources that we don't have internally. Uh, all that that's wonderful and all that being within the box of auditing in a legal mm. manner and all that yes. you talk on um, also about transformation because that's what mm. you're also doing with your clients you're helping them to transform Laurent what has been the transformation you've had to go within Mazar because you clearly in being responsible for people education and culture yeah. must be at the heart of all that oh it's very simple to understand when I joined Mazar, we were kind of 10,000 in something like a bit less than 50 countries. Today, we are 40,000 in 91 countries. So it means in 10 years, uh, we more than double the size, uh, <laughs> much more. But on the top of that, we had to integrate a lot of new people. If I just take our partnership, international partnership, 1,100 people, 63% of them were not with us five years ago. At the same time, you have the impression that Mazar is this kind of stable, long-lasting uh, culture, like L'Oréal. And you mentioned before 20% turnover, so obviously yeah. underneath it's, it's... It's permanent. The reality is that there are very few people that were there a long time ago, except that, of course, in the partners. Because when I say 95% of the people are staying less than 10 years, the five remaining percent are staying here for their entire life. So, uh, and they are making decisions, by the way, because they are the partners. So it's very interesting and schizophrenic uh, to have this double track, I would say, where uh, the people who make the decision are there forever, and and, and they make decisions for people that are going to constantly stay uh, no more than ten years, and sometimes very very much less. So, part of the issue is to to make sure that. Uh, you know, you, you would see in many um, annual reports at the moment the big stress that is put on diversity and inclusion. You will see this everywhere. I don't think the question is diversity and inclusion. By the way, inclusion is a way to minor a little bit diversity and to say, ah, yeah, but we need to be inclusive and this kind of thing. Fine. Uh, in, uh, inclusivity, we, inclusiveness, we practice. We don't talk about it. But the, the reality is my subject as a culture officer, I don't know what, or uh, spur, or inspirator, I don't know what, is, is to make sure that the more we are diverse, the more we need to work on our identity. Not to make it stable, but to change it every day. So when we integrate a firm, let me give you an example, like in Germany. We were 300 in Germany, today we are more than 2,000. We did it because we integrated a firm, and by the way, they integrated us in Germany, but we integrated them worldwide. And these people, they came from a much larger practice. But when they joined Mazar, on their own, they made a decision to change the name of their building uh, while we were telling them, you know, take three years until you, you adopt the name Mazar. I said, no way, we will adopt it right now because we need it also to perform this integration. But you know what? 
in Germany. It is not the Mazar culture that has come there and was poured into the thing. No, we have created a new joint culture, which is no longer the one of Rover Brunner Suzat, that was the name of this company uh, before, this firm before, but which is also not the one of Mazar, uh, especially in France or I don't know what, before. It's a new culture. So how can we be able to remain agile enough to every day, every time we make a uh, uh, an integration to both keep the fundamentals of Mazar, no goodwill, mutualization, one firm principle, respect of individualist kind of things, but at the same time to alter, to change, to modify, to transform our culture. That's basically my job. So to keep the system coherent while at the same time permanently changing. That's the, the definition we could use in there, if you want. Wow. And and within the transformation, presumably there's a greater, more work that has have had to be done with the 1,100 partners who are here to stay, as opposed to hiring a new techie, geeky youngster. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a question we, we had to solve at one point, because, you know, uh, in our profession, uh, many people went for acquiring skills they didn't have. And uh, that was naturally also the move we were tempted to do. Um, at one point, we, we mentioned one thing. Uh, first of all, from day one, Mazawa has always been used to hiring, I would say, generalists, not people that were experts. For instance, it's funny, we work in, in, in a world of figures, but we do not hire uh, massively people from uh, figure education. What I mean by this is, uh, th- this is a very good mantra that Robert Mazar coined at one point. He, he said two things. It's not Steve Jobs who said that. It's Robert Mazar in the, in the 50s. He said, first of all, um, always recruit beyond your need. What did, does it mean? In France, we have this uh, grandes écoles system, but you also have it in the UK, for instance. You can go to Oxford and study history, for instance. Uh, why recruit a historian rather than an accountant when your job is accounting? Well, simply because, like Robert Mazar said, I know how to turn uh, an average engineer into a wonderful consultant in less than three days. But I will never be able, even in 30 years, to turn an, an exceptional accountant into uh, an average engineer. And if you look, what do we do? We serve clients. We have also to secure marketplace. So it means we need to pay attention that when we work, for instance, in the uh, aerospace industry, do you need an accountant or do you need someone who, by design, by learning, by study, knows what we're talking about? And this person will be less subject to being fooled if there is any kind of question than someone who understands what is happening when you launch a rocket and the cost it has behind, what it means in terms of investment, but where you need to to have the right people or not. So if you want to perform good audit, maybe the thing is not to have good accountants, but to have good uh, people that are cognizant in, in in the knowledge of sectors, for instance, of industries, this kind of thing. So that's why we we were always very much paying attention to this. So recruit above your need. This is clearly uh, one good mantra. The second one is, if you hire smart people, it's not to tell them what to do, it's to ask them what to do. And uh, and this is what uh, Robert Mazar really taught us, and it is still uh, very much present in the way we think. So what does it mean? Look, if you want to hire a, a tech or a digital geek, you can hire the guy, and he will come to you, or she will, by the way, he more than she, 
will come to you uh, for money. And it means that the one who is offering more money the day after will make him leave and quit. Uh, so it's a never-ending game. It's a lost cause, if you want. So at one point we say, do we have to massively invest in people that actually are not going to fit into what we do to build long-term uh, long uh, adventure? While at the same time, if you look at the people we have, we naturally recruit. We're recruiting these uh, people that are good in math, and in abstraction most of the time. If you're an engineer by design or if you're uh, a graduate from a business school, you know you have to be good in quants, you have to be good in... So let's hire brains instead of hire competency. So we need to hire potential more than recruit competence. Even if we know today we need to integrate competencies. So on the recent, in the recent past, we have integrated also some uh, small companies that were bringing in new competencies in the digital world, in the geek environment. Uh, but then we take a team and we say, well, we are going to preserve as much as we can the spirit of your team because you have to teach us what we need to know, not to learn from Mazar how you need to be. Well, it sounds like you also have to hire for good attitude. Always. <laughs> Laurent, um, time is what it is. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and chatting about this really great content. How can anybody uh, find out more about what you do, follow yeah. you, because I know you are a producer of content, uh, and, of course, know more about Mazar. The best way to learn is always to go on learning. What I mean by this, uh, first of all, teaching is a good way to learn. By the way, if you want to really uh, learn more, it's not by doing what I'm doing. It's to actually following the same path. I, I see myself again as, as an ever, uh, an everlasting student. As you yeah, I have a problem because you know I went through all this university uh, kind of uh, exercise and titles, and recently I, I completed my postdoctorate degree uh, to supervise um, a PhD. So it means be, why? Because I want to. I don't want to be the one who knows supervising people who don't know. First of all, I want to supervise PhD students. So basically, the the the, the knowledgeable person are them, <laughs> not me. Um, second, it's a way for me to stay in touch with a system that I like very much, which is go on learning. If you write an article, if you give a course, if you if you have to give a conference, you need to learn. So that's the best way to stay alive in a certain way. The second point is, yes, I, I'm trying to write because today, uh, you know, an academic article is read by, in average, something like 2.7 readers, including the two reviewers. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so if you remove my mother, then it's, 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 it's gone. <laughs> so, uh, But at the same time, if you write uh, even a poor article on LinkedIn, you will have something like a thousand views or even more. So uh, today, the channels of uh, exchange discussions uh, are not limited to knowledge. And by the way, academic articles are, in a way, not meant to be read. Um, I like very much the definition, and, and the Harvard Business Review is not seen uh, like an academic journal, but in my, in my uh, opinion, it's, it's a very good one. Uh, but one of his, um, I, I don't remember whether it was uh, Kotler or Kotler, I don't remember who was at the time the editor-in-chief, but he said it's uh, a journal made by people who can't write for people who won't read. <laughs> um, that's, in my view, where we need today to push also knowledge and to, to try to do. So uh, go on LinkedIn, have my own profile. I try to publish an article a week. 
Uh, it's a good way to reflect also on our practice. It's a, but the, the best thing you can do also is to read uh, the people on my team. Why? Because I push them to do so, and what they produce is even better than I do because it's a step forward. It's not just uh, more about me, it's about them, it's about what we do. And so you will find in what they write uh, kind of a summary of what we discussed, most of the time <laughs> really well written. On my team, I have 10 people, but I have 11 nationalities. So they write in their own language as well. So you have here a source of things that are very good. Last, we are very much fond of podcasts at the moment because uh, instead of a video which is long to produce and so on, the podcast goes fast, just like we're doing. Uh, you can listen to it in your car, in uh, in the tube, in the wherever you are, uh, offline, online, whatever. So it's a good way to learn. I like this way of learning. Beautiful. Laurent, merci beaucoup. Great pleasure. Uh, happy holidays and let's keep going. Yes. Thank you to you, Minta. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls-Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.